0: Here we go. These are going to be true and false. This is on the life of Christ. Let's see how you do it. The raising of Lazarus was the last recorded miracle of healing done by Jesus during his lifetime. True or false? You got 50-50 on this one. Okay. It is false. He does a number of miracles, healings, when he cleanses... The temple, if you remember last week, we said that after he cleanses the temple, he does miracle of healings. Palm Sunday was the first and last time the Jews openly wanted Jesus to be their king. Why is it false? One other time, one other time, after he fed the thousands in John 6, then they wanted him to make to be the king. So this is not the first time, but it's the last time. The Jews, you saw the answer. The Jews were not allowed to bring any animal into the temple grounds except those approved by the priest. This is Passover. Okay, you saw false because you saw me flip up the thing, but they could trade the animals remember we pointed out that last week you remember he said you are buying and selling and historical records said that some of those people who didn't have money they could barter their animals to get their other animals to get appropriate animals for sacrifice prior to acts none of the jewish leaders attributed jesus's works as showing he was from god do you remember in the book of acts that's why is it false Nicodemus is the reason that it's false. Because in John chapter 3, Nicodemus says, we know you are sent from God because no man can do the things that you do except for God does them. A large part of the Jewish leadership were divided in their opinion of Jesus during his last week. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of, are there some who are standing up for Jesus? There was a couple. But for most of the part, they were not divided. They were united in an effort to get rid of him. Okay? Jesus cursed the fig tree to teach a lesson on the power of prayer. Mm. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It is true. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. Okay. Yeah, in fact, remember last week we said he taught, he used, the question was on forgiveness, which he does, and he also teaches about prayer, and he teaches about some other things. That's where we're headed for. We're in Mark chapter 11. We are talking with verse 12, and we're going to follow up. Now, if you're just gathering with us, we're in this last week of Jesus' life. He, in our story that we're going, he is on Palm Sunday, marched into Jerusalem. On that uh, Monday, he cleanses the temple. And on Tuesday, we're at Tuesday morning right now. Let's back up a little bit. We have the cursing of the fig tree. Here's what we read in Mark 11, starting with verse 12. On the morrow, this is Monday. On, the, on Monday morning, when they were come to Bethany, he was hungry. He is on his way from, um, from Bethany to Jerusalem for the cleansing of the temple. And on the way, it says, He saw a fig tree from afar having leaves. He came, if haply he might find anything thereon. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. He said to the tree, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. The disciples heard it. He goes, he cleanses the temple. And so let's back up, let's go down a little bit more. And so it says, When evening was come, verse 19, he went out of the city. In the morning, verse 20, is now Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter, calling to remembrance, said, Master, behold, the fig tree which you cursed, it's withered away. And so now we have on Tuesday, here's what's happening. You can read it in the sense what we just read and Peter's going to point out. Jesus goes on. Now, any of you have a red letter edition? What do you have verses 23, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26? Most of it is red letter. And that's because Jesus answered and said. Now here's his lessons. Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he said shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever you desire... When you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have ought against any. That your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Okay, let's set the scene. We've talked about it. We're heading in. What are his lessons? There's one that's not stated, but it's illustrated. And that is his lesson on fruitfulness. The lesson is very simple, that Jesus comes to the fig tree expecting it to have fruit fruit. It doesn't. The reason we, we've talked about this in the past the leaves would usually come after the fruit has already started to mature. And this tree it has leaves but when he gets there there's not even fruit. Fruit, Not even the, the um, unripened fruit that they could still eat. And there's nothing. So this tree has outward appearance but it isn't fruitful. And so just taking the tree and using it and what he illustrates that Jesus is looking for. And it makes sense because he's going into Jerusalem Jerusalem. He's, the day before, he heard a lot of accolades. Now he goes into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and he's looking for real fruit. Does he find real spiritual fruit in the temple? No. Instead, what's he find? You have made my father's house a uh, a den of thieves. Okay, and so Jesus is going to curse the tree just like Jerusalem is going to be cursed. Remember what he did the day before? The day before, when he came in on Sunday as the people were cheering, Jesus approaching Jerusalem, what does, what's his emotion? He was weeping over what? The, the condition of Israel and what's going to happen to them, how they're going to be destroyed. And so you have this same that illustrated that he's actually looking for the fruit. And uh, the setting is real clear that what he's doing is he's making a statement about fruit bearing. Now, by illustration, the, the disciples should put this together. We should put it together. That does Christ look for fruit in our lives? The answer is, yeah, what, what type of fruit? Joy, peace. Anything else? What's that? Gentleness, goodness, anything else? Love. Okay, charity. We could, we could write down a whole bunch of them. That the Lord wants us to have these types of fruits in our life. If there isn't the fruit, what does the tree illustrate? He looks for fruit, and if there isn't any, okay, it's dead. There might not be real life there. might not be saved. If these people are claiming to be born again, well, the bottom line is, without fruit there's chastisement of some sort. For the unsaved, we know what that's condemnation. For the saved, there's a form of chastisement. So we have a lesson from the fruit about fruitfulness. Now, Jesus makes statements, and this is what he drives at. And I remember, when he, t- he speaks in verses 22, 23, 24, he's talking to his disciples. These people that he's talking to, he's going to make a statement. And in the original language, here's the way it reads. Verse 22 And my Bible reads, have faith in God. The way it reads in the original is, keep on having faith in God. Okay, same thing, but a little bit different. Okay, and so he says, keep on having faith faith in God. And the idea is that you don't doubt That's what he mentions a couple times where he says that the statement that you know, doubting in your heart in verse 23. And so he's telling that to disciples. So let's take it from the perspective that we're disciples. What does this mean for you and me? Okay, the challenge to the disciples is basically don't allow yourself to stumble when bad things are happening. That makes perfect sense that you people need to keep on having. He's talking to the, the 12. Keep on having faith. Are there going to be bad things happening in the next few days? Okay, like what? What could stumble them? Okay, his death. Anything else? What's that? His arrest, his persecution. What about them? Okay, Do they feel threatened? Oh yeah, they go lock themselves up. And so they're going to have all kinds of difficulties. They're going to face the opposition of the Jewish leaders just like him. I mean, didn't Peter get put on the spot? You are one of his disciples, aren't you? Okay? And so Peter felt that. And so he's basically saying, and, and remember, when this, is, when this is stated, he's gone in, he's cleansed the temple. Do they return to the corruption of the temple after he's cleansed it in, in weeks and months ahead? They do. They do. And so does that, does that discourage people at times when you deal with somebody and they refuse to change? Yeah, so he's telling the disciples, you, you just don't get discouraged. Remember, they're Jewish disciples. They're gonna, some of them are going to live to see the destruction of Jerusalem. Don't let that lose heart. Don't lose faith. Just remain steadfast in all you do. Keep on showing faith no matter what. Now, that's a lesson he's giving them. Keep on having faith. And so that lesson, let's go a little bit more in that lesson. He tells them if you have this ongoing faith, this ongoing faith, you can see fabulous feats of God happen in your life. Well, how does he do that? Look in verse 23. Be, he says to the mountain, be removed. Now we've talked about this a couple times. This is a Jewish idiom okay this is an idea of a, a term it's an illustration that they would use to say okay you can move mountains basically in jewish literature that's a phrase that's saying you can see the phenomenal happen you can see the amazing happen why how's that through that prayer doing what seems impossible, but praying in faith, will the disciples need this for the days ahead? Absolutely. They're going to need to know that they have to, they can see actual phenomenal things happen, but they have to pray. Now watch the key. Look at the verses. Verse 23. He's telling them that this can happen, but you have to pray in faith. And he's telling them that when you pray, etc., etc. he says, okay, when you are praying in verse 24, it's very personal that they're praying, that when you guys do this. Not you as a group, but he uses the singular idea here. You have to pray repeatedly. You have to pray uh, time and time again. And so he's telling them that they're going to be able to see some phenomenal things. Now, if we think back to some of the phenomenal things, let's start listing some of them that they see. They're going to see opposition at the death of Christ. Do they, in the book of Acts, see some of those leaders get saved who were involved with the actual death of Jesus Christ? Do some of the Pharisees get saved? The answer is yes. Okay. Do they see? Well, who's the most famous Pharisee that they see who is the most obstinate? the Apostle Paul, okay, who at the time he saw. They are going to see just strange things, amazing things happen that at this point they don't understand. They just don't get it. They're even going to see a mountain move. That is the Gentiles come to know Christ and come to worship. And so they're going to see a lot of these things they need to remember. We've got to pray. We've got to pray. We've got to pray personally. Now he goes on in that prayer time and he talks about forgiveness. So you have fruitfulness, you have faith, you have forgiveness, all coming out of this tree illustration out of this lesson now he's saying you can see phenomenal things but you've got to be forgiving and it's interesting and I don't know why he does it other than it's important but it's interesting in the middle of this text where he's talking in verse 22 23 24 it's all about prayer and then verse 25 he adds this aspect of praying okay of forgiving excuse me when you're praying and so he's obviously bringing this up because there's a reason what do you think he's telling the disciples why is he telling them, you guys, to see phenomenal things in the future, you've got to be forgiving? What might he be referring to? What, you know, what could be their problem of not forgiving in the future? Okay. In what way? In what, how would they be unforgiving? Okay. Could they be unforgiving to the Jewish people who killed him? That they don't want to go and preach to them? Okay, okay, that could happen. That's a a strong possibility that those people condemned Christ, we're not even going to reach out to them. Okay, that's a possibility. Could they have any issues of forgiving within themselves? What's that? Yeah, the betrayal of the disciple. Could they they be absolutely nothing to do with Judas? Okay, Judas kills himself. But what about with one another? Could they have problems with one another? Okay. Well, let's think about it. Could some of them really get upset with Peter? Okay. That Peter, okay. That Peter denies him three times. Okay. Well, that would obviously mean Peter is not eligible to be our leader anymore. Okay. Right. Okay. Could you think that? I would. I would have. Maybe you wouldn't. But I would have if I were one of them at least. You know. Okay, we all ran away. They will. Remember, this is all future tense. They all run away from the Garden of Gethsemane. But Peter goes a little bit further. He publicly denies. And so, they've got issues. And by the way, do they have issues right now with one another? Yeah, remember what's going to happen in two, three days? When they get into the upper room, they are arguing over... Which is going to be the greatest. So they've got issues with one another. Okay. Can you imagine Christians not getting along? That's amazing. Okay. So they have got the forgiveness issue. Okay. And so Jesus is telling them they've got to be willing to forgive if they're going to experience. And he's telling them you've got to forgive anyone. Now, some of the anyone we've already mentioned. Okay. When he says you've got to forgive against any, that could be those Jewish leaders Who are going to have Jesus arrested and killed. It could be the many of the Jews who at Passover make him king, or at, at a Palm Sunday make him king, but then we want nobody but Christ. And so it could be one another. And his statement here is failure to be merciful forfeits mercy of God. This isn't the first time Jesus said this. He states it multiple times, which means, hmm, it's an issue Jesus wants you and I to reconcile. We've got to get a handle on this. Failure to forgive jeopardizes forgiveness that we can receive okay? for, for our needs. What it brings me back to is just, just a thought, just to ponder it for a few moments. This idea of forgiveness is mentioned a lot of times in Scripture. What does that say to you and me? If God brings it up a lot of times, it's an important issue with him. From his perspective, it's important. From our perspective, it's a problem. It must be a problem that it keeps on getting addressed. Okay, now it's a problem that none of us here have, but other people have. Right? Okay. Now, I mean, seriously, do we at times struggle with forgiving family members? Do we at times forgive, have struggle forgiving parents who didn't raise us totally the way that we think they should have? Forgiving parents who gave us one of those goofy names. Like Wayne. Okay. okay. Do we have problems forgiving siblings? Yes. yes, we do. We do. We struggle. Okay, we all have the issues because you know you know, let's let's do most of us know of families that have weird families at times? Okay. And so we struggle with that. So it seems to be a common problem in the New Testament that doesn't go away. And what it states to me is this. This command of Jesus Christ about forgiveness, it drives home some thoughts to me. It drives home that God knows what I think and feel about people. Even if I don't say it out loud, God knows it. That's scary. God knows what I think about you, Jim. Yeah, that's an oh. No. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. God, knows, God knows exactly what we think about each other. God knows about unresolved conflicts that we are harboring, if we're harboring any kind of anger or bitterness. Any bad attitude towards another that we might harbor is disturbing to God. It's, a, it's, you know, it's something that, and again, we've illustrated that we as parents don't want our kids to be battling. We don't like that. It it makes us uncomfortable. But any bad attitude, this is just challenging. Any bad attitude or actions we have towards somebody, it disrupts our prayer life. So what we do is we go to church, and at church we just make sure everything is okay, and then God forgets about it. And we just go on with our bad attitude. (laughs) But we do operate that way sometimes. We do, and it's not true. It's not true. Does, does prayer, does, does a problem between husband and wife disrupt prayer? It does. First Peter chapter 3, if, you're, if the husbands aren't right, your prayer shall be hindered. Yeah. And so it's an amazing thought that any bad attitude we harbor forfeits unexpected blessings. Those phenomenal mountain-moving experiences. I wonder how many I've given up by not guarding an attitude towards somebody and i gave up the possibility of a mountain moving situation that's a really sobering thought that god says this is really important religious disciplines are not a substitute for right relationships wait my screen's going goofy okay let's let's bring some thoughts back to to lessons that we can note, okay? Jesus repeatedly displayed. Let's just pause here this this far with the fig tree. Jesus is going to do it in small ways and in big ways. I'm God. I'm the creator. Small ways, hey, I know where the animals are. Go get those two donkeys. I'm going to ride the one. I'm going to send them back. Small ways, I curse a fig tree. Within 24 hours, it's dead. Small ways. Big ways, I just raise Lazarus from the dead. I'm doing many other miracles. I've just claimed the temple to be my father's home, and I'm taking charge of the temple. So he's doing this repeatedly, making sure that the audience knows I'm God, I'm God. Now, for you and me, that's not a battle, right? Because theologically, how many decades have we accepted he's God? It's been part of Christianity for quite a few years. Remember when this was first presented, when it was first Marcus first writing, these people are still some of them coming from polytheism. Some of them coming, and they're still thinking, is he a man? And and by the way, did they ever have demigods in their society? Did they ever have that in their literature? Half man, half god? Yeah, that's part of their the ancient world. So this this illustration of deity. Being repeated throughout the Gospels. It's important because of their culture. You and I live with generations of already having settled the doctrine of the deity of Christ. It doesn't hit us in the face like it would them. But it's an important doctrine. The fig tree was somewhat symbolic of Israel's condition. We, you all understand that. We all can see. Israel pretends to have worship. Israel, even at the time of Passover. They have all the celebration. But what are they doing inside? Inside it's all about The money, okay? And so we know that. We understand it because we see the insights that Scripture gives us. And we also know that from the Old Testament, the fig tree often illustrated Israel. So it makes perfect sense that he's looking for fruit in Israel. He's trying to find out, are they going to have the fruit of true repentance that John preached? And we all know the story that it's not. It's not going to happen. The city is cursed. They're going to be destroyed in 70 AD. And Jesus had predicted that the day before, knowing it, and it breaks his heart. Here's a thought. Jesus is willing to let his disciples experience a bit of the same power he has. That they could move mountains as well. That they could see phenomenal things happen. And that's true. Does Jesus give us the opportunity to experience the unusual? Sure, sure, he shares with us, then that's a joy. Uh, But we have to do our part. Our part, according to this text, is those three things we mentioned, or two things in particular. One is we have to have fruitfulness, okay? The other one is faith, and that's stated in the text. We have to have faith, okay, and that's a major part. And if we have approved faith, we're going to experience the incredible. The approved faith is faith that is going to be seen by praying, By praying on a regular basis, because you believe, because you trust. You're going to do it personally, you're going to you're going to do it over and over again. So approved faith that sees great things happens is expressed by you going to God and talking to him. That's what he expects. You coming and talking to him with great faith. The results as well of faith is being steadfast in trials. Don't stumble. Keep on having faith no matter what is happening. This one I didn't have in your notes. So you can add it in. The results in being in steadfast. That's approved faith. Let me go uh, continue on. There We said there's faith. There's also forgiveness. Forgiveness is critical that you and I have this in our heart. It's a major part of the Christian life. And it's, it states that we have to be willing... To forgive, And again, we're going to go back to that old thing. Sometimes it's hard to forgive and to exercise that forgiveness. In this sense. Let's say Dev and I have a great falling out. She just doesn't see things the way that she's supposed to. We have this huge falling out. And I can go and ask forgiveness. But what could stifle the, the reconciliation? She doesn't forgive. Because she's being stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. I can't imagine that, you know where she would get that from? Okay, but she's being stubborn and doesn't forgive me. I can't reconcile. We can try, but could there be a barrier there? And sometimes that, I mean, you know, it leads to separation, divorce, those types of things. And and you say, well, I've tried. That's true. You're supposed to do your part. You can't force the other person, your parent, your relative, your co-worker. You can't force them to reciprocate forgiveness. Correct? Okay, that's where, but what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to make sure in our heart that we have said, okay, I've forgiven. But they may not accept your forgiveness. Do you know people like that? Yeah, yeah they, don't want your, they don't want forgiveness. They want your blood. Okay, they, they want revenge. And so you can only do so much. But you have to say before God, have I done what I'm supposed to do? Okay, and so that's the important part of this, forgiving repeatedly. Being right with others impacts on being right with God. I underestimate this one statement. And I don't think I'm the only one, but I, I underestimate this. How important this is in my life. Being right with others you know, is so important. Otherwise, I'm not right with God. Being right with Deb is so important. or I'm not right with God. Being right with my siblings. Otherwise, I'm not right with God. Being right with you. Otherwise, I'm not right with God. I underestimate that. And I have in my nature that if those things happen, I'm going to throw something at God to substitute for it. I'll just preach a better sermon. I'll just work harder, do more calls. And that'll take care of it. That doesn't take care of it. What takes care of being right with others? Being right with others, okay? And trying to make sure we get that right. So are you right with others or harboring the hurts? Are you willing to make peace and forgive? Have you done this? where you've tried to do the reconciliation. Those are the critical questions you and I have that we have to deal with. If not, it hinders our walk, our prayer life, even what we can experience. So he's taught those things from the fig tree. He's used an object lesson. And isn't it neat how the Lord uses object lessons time and time again? I mean, he's just so clever with it. So what happens right after that, we think, okay, it happens sometimes here, is a story that's only in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and it's an important story for you and me because of what it says and how it it, it affects. Now, in John chapter 12, we get the account where he's going to meet up with some Greeks. Well, actually, they meet up with him. When it happened, we just don't know. Here's what we've got before I read it. We've got this. We've got a group of people coming and wanting to see Jesus. They're called Greek worshipers. The indication in this text, it says in verse 20 of John 12, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The came up verb is they did this regularly. So it seems like they've come at other feasts. So they're Jewish proselytes. They've been converted to Judaism. They come to the feast more than once. So they've been here more than once is the indication. And they want when they're there at this feast, okay, coming from out of country apparently, they come, they see, they hear about Jesus Christ, which would make sense because if they heard about the parade on Sunday, that they come. And so the idea here is they want an interview. They come and they approach. They say, we want to have a personal conversation with Jesus. Can we see him? Can we find out? And so they approach Philip. The story goes on. It says that they go to Philip and they ask him. um, and, And we don't know why they go to Philip other than the idea is Philip's name might be familiar to them. Right? How would Greeks know of Philip? Do you remember their history? Alexander's father was... Philip yeah, Philip of Macedon. And so Philip was a Greek name, very common. So if they heard that name, maybe that's what drew them to him. Coming from that town of Bethsaida where there were some Gentiles. And so they feel comfortable. They desire to him saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip comes and he's not sure how to manipulate it or make it happen. He comes to Andrew. And Andrew then, he brings Philip and these guys to Jesus and they ask about it. And Andrew, we know, is the one who's always bringing people to Christ. The little boy, these Greeks. And so we have, a, here's an irony of it. Gentiles are seeking out Jesus. Okay? Have they ever done this before? Have we ever had Gentiles inquiring, we want to see Jesus? Yeah. Where? When? The wise men. men. Okay, when you're saying, I'm thinking, I'm thinking at a birth, this is the answer I'm looking for. It's a wise man, sorry. In the early days of his life, the Gentiles come and they're inquiring. Okay? So at the beginning of his life, there's Gentiles coming to worship. Isn't it ironic to come at the latter times? Now, the Jews keep on saying, we want to see a sign. What do the Gentiles ask for? Do you see it? We We would see... Jesus Himself. Okay, so they want to see Jesus. The Jews they want to see. Hey, give us, give us miracles. No, we want to see the messenger, not the miracle. We want to, we want to see him. And so it's an irony that seems to be a little bit more. These Gentiles got it together a little bit better, and they understood with what limited revelation they had, they caught it better than the people who had so much more. And so we don't know. Here's the question that I can't answer: When did this happen? There's a possibility that it's happened. That it happened Monday. Okay? There's a possibility it happened Tuesday. We don't know. We don't know which day it's happening. Okay, It might have happened Monday, right after the cleansing of the temple. Now, if it happened Monday, can you see why these people would be excited to see Jesus? Because what part of the temple did he just clear out? The place where they would be worshiping. Where they couldn't worship, which shows that Jesus has a concern for... Them. Okay. Um, and so that could be the case. Or maybe it's the follow-up of the day after. We don't know. But the point is that these guys are seeking out Jesus. Now remember, a lot of the Jews aren't asking for personal interviews. Why? Because they will be with a crowd. It's okay. But remember, all the way back about, four, we, um, about three months prior to this, if any of you seek out Jesus privately, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. They threatened that with that man who was born blind. And they threatened his parents who came and gave testimony. So in the Jewish culture, do the Jews know that there's animosity towards Jesus? Yeah, it's underground. How would these guys know it? They don't live in that culture. So they probably don't know all the threats. And besides, if, if the threat is, we're going to kick you out of the local synagogue. They don't care. Why? They're not part of that local synagogue. So you can understand why they're saying, we really don't care what the Pharisees do to us. Because, by the way, do Greeks think more independently than the Jews? But yeah, their whole culture. They'd be more like us Americans. Oh, I don't care. You can threaten me all you want. I still want to see them. You know, it's my right. <laughs> okay. So um, you know, so that sets it up. We don't know if he had a conversation other than what's stated in verse 23. And Jesus answered them. Is he answering Philip and Andrew? Is he answering the Greeks? Don't know. Don't know. It seems, though, that he's gonna, he has some type of conversation. What's, what's the important part is, what does he say? Okay? And so the conversation is, Jesus takes the opportunity that people are inquiring, and he does an in-depth conversation. It's a really interesting conversation. He is going to unveil some deep, deep theological truths that are not for the novices, but for the meat eaters. And so he gives them several instructions. Watch what he says. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat should fall unto the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it. He that hates his life in this world shall keep it in the life eternal if any man serve me let him follow me and where I am there shall my servant be if any man serve me he will be he will my father honor now is my soul troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour for this cause I came unto this hour so father glorify that thy name now what he does is he makes a statement now usually when we think the hour has come it's in reference to what Typically, when he says it's not my hour or my hour has come, what's he referring to? What event? His death, okay? He's referring to his death. That is all the way through the Gospel of John, except for here. This time, he doesn't call it his hour of death or his hour in reference to dying. It's related to it, but what does he call it? The hour that's going to be for his what? His glorification. His glorification. That's an interesting thought. That normally he does it, but this time, this is my hour of glorification. Which is interesting. Does Jesus know he's going to die? Yeah, look at the illustrations. He says right next, uh, the corn has to do what? It has to die to bring forth fruit. What does he say about his feelings in verse 27? My soul is it's troubled over what's going to happen. So he's not ignoring his death, but what does he see his death as? Okay. He sees his death as, yeah, as a step of honoring the father and going further in a more positive way, not a negative way. How do we see trials more positive or more negative? We're more negative. And so it's an interesting, his concept of this, he sees his upcoming suffering as something really good, as something that's going to glorify him. So he's looking at something very positive. Then he gives this parable, the parable of the seed, which it's, it's so so transparent for all of you who garden. The fact is, you put the seed, the seed has to die and lose itself, and then it brings forth... Of its kind, more fruit, and uh, it grows into the beauty of a harvest. And so that could be referring, obviously, to his own death, okay? His physical death. His physical death, he has to die, but he comes back alive, does he not? Okay, what else does he do? Spiritually, does he bring forth more fruit when he resurrects? Yeah, you and I are part of this harvest. And so there's a lot of spiritual truth there. And he talks about it as the seed. Now, here's the part that gets a little bit um, convoluted in our thinking at times. Sometimes he has said, you know, you, you know if you love your life, you're not going to have eternal life. Okay? And sometimes he says it in a backwards way. Okay, in this way, this time he says, that he that loves his life shall lose it. Okay, this is that clear one. Okay, if I love my life here in this world, right now, I'm actually going to lose life. But if I prefer, where the idea of hate, remember that hate is the idea of putting something further and better. So if I hate my life, that is, I prefer other things than me, then I'm going to have eternal life. So he's making it very clear, we need to put him first. He goes on, he makes a plea to them. The plea is very simple. It says, follow me and be my servant. Follow me. Now this is clear to the Jews, it's clear to the Gentiles standing there. And then he makes a prayer. After he's made a plea of following me, following me, which is consistent. He's, he makes a comment that he says, okay, um, I am troubled. This is interesting. Jesus is torn apart. The word troubled is that same one that shows up later on in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also. Okay, this is that same thing. And it literally means I'm torn apart. He is admitting at this moment, I am torn apart. Does he ever show that in the next few days? Does he ever show great turmoil and great stress? Yeah, where? Garden of Gethsemane when he is praying and he's sweating. Yeah. Okay. So, so, you and I sh- uh, not to uh, not to misunderstand. Jesus is in great personal turmoil over what's coming ahead. Okay, that's happening. He's even going to say, "Let this cup pass from me." Okay, he's gonna, he's got this turmoil. Doesn't mean he's not willing. No. That doesn't, he may have turmoil, but he's willing to go through it. In fact, he even makes that comment here. Okay, just because I'm troubled about what's going to happen. And by the way, does he know on the other side of the difficulty, there's glorification? He's already said that, but he knows that it's, he knows it's, uh, it's the process. Let's rephrase that. It's not death that, that you know, died, uh, the death that is the problem for us, you know, because we know where we're going to be. It's the process. Yes. That's what scares us. Okay, and so he's going through this process, and he's troubled by it. By being troubled, let me throw this out to you. By being troubled by going through it, does that mean he's weak in faith? Is that normal then? That believers can be committed to the Lord but still feel turmoil? The answer is, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely absolutely. He's, he's an expression of this, that it's possible that happens. So he's going to be uh, giving up his life, bearing forth fruit. And so he's troubled over what's ahead. And that's because the human perspective. From the human perspective, it's going to be troubling because of the separation. And that's the key. The key when he prays, remove this cup from me, it's not, okay, I, I'm not willing to go to the cross. That's not the point. What he's going to experience on the cross is what? The cup of wrath. Which means he and the Father are separated. The separation from the Father is the issue. Being separated from the Father. It's not the it's not the whipping, it's not the cross. It's the separation from the Father. And basically what is gonna restore what act is gonna restore Jesus to glorification? What does the Father do third day? He resurrects him. And so remove this penalty, this sting of death that, that is going to be upon me, not just the separation from the Father, but the sting of death of, of my body being dead for several days. Remove that. And so there's reassurance that's going to happen. And so he gets that. His question is this. Just because I'm deeply troubled, should I say, God, I'm not willing to go to the cross? No. No. He says, that's uh, no. That's why he sent me. I was sent to do this. I came to do this. I'm troubled, but I'm still going to go to the cross. I'm still going to do what God wants me to do. And then he turns and he prays. He prays in verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Again, it's a prayer of recommitment. It's a prayer of, I want everything to be done according to your will. I'm willing to do it. And God responds. Right? How does God respond? What does it say in this verse? Okay, then came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by, they heard it and said, oh, it's a voice of, some said thunder, some said it's a voice of an angel. Okay, so they were uncertain. And so Jesus' comment, he says, oh, by the way, this voice came not because of me. Okay, I didn't need the voice. Whose benefit is it? It's for your benefit. And so, in this case, you know, there's that voice that speaks out. Let's just stop. Like the Gentiles, we should seek to spend personal time with Jesus. Now, let me add something here. This is an important thought. We should seek to spend personal time even when we're in the physical place of worship. If they are approaching him at the temple, they're in the place of worship. But they still should seek a personal time with Jesus. That's a, that's a challenge for you and I. Can we be, could we possibly be in a worship center and still not focused on Christ? Oh yeah, it happens to some of us a lot, that we can be distracted. So we want to we make sure we're focused. Jesus knew the future well. Another account, a deity. He knows what's happening. He knows what's coming up. He is not unrealistic or excited about personal sufferings. He's pained by it. But he's not, the, he's not masochistic. He's not saying, oh, this is so cool to, you know, to be tortured. He's, he's not saying that. He never advocates that. That's, that's not the point. Okay? The point is this, okay, um, that you're gonna go through trials, but you have to look beyond the trial. We will probably experience the same thing. It doesn't mean we are weak in faith because we have we're agitated by trials. We're feeling stressed by the trials. That doesn't mean we're we're weak. It doesn't mean okay, you lose a loved one. And you sorrow. Oh, that means you're weak in faith. No. That means you're a real person. Okay? Jesus feels the sorrow and the suffering, but he doesn't lose hope. But he still has the anguish. And he understands the anguish. Okay? Let's go a step further. Jesus looked beyond his temporary sufferings to the glory it would bring. So he's trying to handle the trial. You look beyond the trial to the benefit down the road. Like Jesus, we should not avoid God's will because it might include some uncomfortable or troublesome times. In fact, we can pretty much say for sure it's going to. Okay, what does he say? Take up your cross. Okay, and follow me. Um, Jesus does not ask us to do what he was unwilling to do. He surrendered to the Father's will, even though he was troubled by it. We should too. Prayer is the right response to feeling troubled. Okay, by the example of Christ, that's the right response. When we're feeling this turmoil and trouble over trials, hey, we've got to pray. Let's continue on. What happens? God responds verbally to Jesus' prayer. Others heard this voice. Now, just for your information, this is the third time God spoke. When Jesus something was happening to Jesus. Do you remember the other two? His baptism, right. There was, this is my beloved. Yeah, that happened at his baptism. Do you remember the other time? The transfiguration was the other time. Okay. The time when he was revealed at baptism, he was also revealed at transfiguration. Both those times, there's a voice from heaven. And then it happens this time. Three different occasions that it happens in the life of Christ. That is, and the, Jesus makes it sure, make sure they understand this is for your benefit, not for me. And then he goes on and speaks a little bit more. He continues. If you look in your passage, we still have some more red letters. He says, now in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men to me what's he talking about what's he referencing what's the what's going to bring the judgment to the world the judgment to satan his crucifixion, okay? And that's the idea of this whole lifting up. So it's a time of judgment, defeat of the devil. If this crucifixion that he's going to experience in the next couple of days, it's going to be a time where he's going to draw people. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, okay? Reference, obviously a reference to his crucifixion, and then could be his resurrection ascension as well. Um, the drawing is not a reference to universal salvation. What we mean by that is this. Um, Is there a universal offer of salvation? Yes. Yes. Is is there universal, are people universally saved? No. Okay, so that's the term universal salvation means, uh, okay, Jesus died for everyone, therefore everyone is saved. That's not true. There's an offer that's being made universally. He will draw all men and uh, make it clear, just like somehow it's made clear through creation there's a God. Somehow through our conscience it's made clear that we're moral beings. Somehow I'm going to present this truth, and as it's revealed, I will woo all all people to some degree to a point of salvation. And so this all people aspect is the idea that when people stand one day and say, you know, I didn't get saved because you didn't make me an offer. That's not possible. It's not possible. Who does God make this offer to? Everyone, okay, and to some degree as the truth is given out, there is a wooing to all hearts and however they respond is part of their personal responsibility in accepting Jesus Christ. So we have that personal idea of what the working of God, trying to get all men saved, but at the same time, he doesn't force his will upon people They have to be willing to be saved. Um, Let's keep on going. People that are hereby. It's interesting. Look at what happens, how the response is. He said all this to signify his death. The people around him, they heard and they say, "Uh uh-uh, the son of man be lifted up. This can't be. Who is this son of man? Now remember from the book of Daniel, they know son of man is Messiah. In their mind, Messiah lives for how long? Forever and ever. That's what they've heard in Sabbath school. All this. So he's talking. They're thinking he's Messiah. They claimed he was Messiah. Son of man. Son of David. King of Israel. What's he mean he's going to die? He can't die if he's the real Messiah. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And so how can he be talking about dying? So he appeals some more to them, and he makes another statement. Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not whither he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. Has he ever said, I am the light of the world? He preached that uh, three months ago in Jerusalem. He says, I am the light of the world. And he's going back to this theme that I am the light. You have to believe in me and I'm going to leave. Children of light will believe. And he's pleading with them. Now what you have after that is you have just these comments from John. These things spake Jesus and what does he do? He leaves and does something else. Okay, he hides himself from these people. Exactly when this happened, we're not sure. Okay, but he's going to he's going to be away from these people he's just had the conversation with. And then John adds a number of different Comments. Look what else he adds. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they would not believe. Those could be the miracles mentioned in Matthew and Mark that he did even that day uh, of the uh, cleansing of the temple. And why is it that they didn't believe? That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, Lord, who hath believed our report, to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because that Isaiah had said again, he hath blinded their eyes. And so by their response, just like Pharaoh, just our, uh, not, Yeah, Pharaoh. From in the past. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? But it says he hardened his heart and it says God hardened his heart. So who did it? Both. Both. As he hardened his heart, then what happened? God's, God's, you know, kept... Do you ever see a little kid get stubborn? And you'd say, pick up the toys. And the little kid says, no. And the more you say, pick up the toys, the more... there's a no. So who's hardening the heart? You know, who's creating the conflict? We both are. As I keep bringing this to the child's attention, I'm going to get my way, by the way, but as I keep bringing this to the child's attention, do I make that child even more stubborn at times? Okay, so am I encouraging, am I encouraging, I'm going to use that tongue-in-cheek, am I creating his stubbornness to some degree? Okay, but who is the one ultimately responsible? The child, okay, by not acquiescing. In that same way, okay, in the same way, God's presenting the truth. It's that same sun that both hardens the clay and melts the butter. Okay, so as God presents the truth, there's, there's a possibility that I may respond or I may get hard. And then God keeps on hammering with the truth. And some people get, you know, I'm just going to get more stubborn. Okay, and so you have that idea here that Jesus is saying, okay, this offer is made to all, but... They're going to refuse. God predicted they're going to refuse. Okay, he says that in verse 42, and I've already flipped this up here. In verse 42, nevertheless, among the chief rulers, some believed because the Pharisees, that, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess openly. Now those some believe, who could they be? We know of one that already came to see Jesus of the Pharisees, Nicodemus. Do you know of another one that's a possibility he believed? He shows up at the end of this, at the end of this week. He shows up at the cross. He helps take the body down. Joseph of Arimathea. Okay, another individual who's part of this leadership. Okay, but why didn't they confess Jesus openly before their peers? I would think so. I Fear is probably the answer. Okay, the pressure of others. But then we know in the book of Acts later on that many of them will confess him later on. So it's not an issue as you go on. So what you have at the end of the book is just this. I've got about two minutes here. Um, and let me finish it up. What he does is, look at how he ends out verse twelve or chapter 12. And it goes on. Jesus had cried, He that believes on me believes not on me, but on him that sent me. He that sees me sees him not that sent me. I am coming to the light of the world. Whosoever believes on me shall not abide in darkness. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. When were these words spoken? We don't know. What it seems to be, Is this. It seems that this is a summary of Jesus' teaching. This is not the first time that John records it this way. There's a couple other times in the Gospel of John where it's like, okay, was this a speech or a sermon Jesus just gave, or is he just, as the author, stopping and summarizing the teachings of Christ? It appears to be the latter. That Jesus is just, John is just recording summary statements. What's interesting in this summary statement is he is putting all the themes. Of the gospel into one paragraph. And so these themes come up this way. This is in the gospel of John. This is just a, uh, an overview of the gospel of John. John has these phrases. More than any of the other gospels. That summarize the work of Jesus Christ. That idea of, of being the light in darkness. That idea of if you see me you see the father. The idea of believe on me you're going to be free. The idea of, you, of whosoever. This summary statement has all these thoughts in them that it talks about it once again. And there's more to it, so as soon as you write, I'll flip this over. But it's a summary of, okay, this is the ministry of Jesus Christ in a nutshell. Let me go on for time. I haven't come to judge. I've come to give peace. I've come to save the world. Judgment is real, though. In this text, four times he mentions judgment, that it's a real possibility. And if you reject Christ, you're going to be judged. You could have everlasting otherwise. And then he speaks what God speaks. And he's always doing the will of God. These are the themes of the Gospel of John. You'll find these uh, 12 different statements. I think it is. You'll find them throughout the gospel. And he concludes this section with that. In fact, John concludes now. All of that happened. He recorded the um, Palm Sunday. He didn't record anything about the temple cleansing. He has Palm Sunday, the Greeks coming, the Gentiles, Greeks coming, the words of Jesus Christ, Jesus disappearing Wednesday, Coming back and meeting with the disciples and having the Last Supper is the next thing that shows up in John 13, which is that Thursday night going into Friday. So John is summarizing, capsulizing the, uh, the events where the others give us more details, but John wants us to note the message of Jesus Christ.